0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Genuinely Interested podcast. My name is Roy Bensvee and I'm your host. And this week we have Alex Dawson, who is a uh, underwater photographer, scuba diver uh, coming from Sweden. I've been following his work for many years and uh, I actually wanted to talk to him because his photos are just so surreal. It looks like it could be on Mars or, or the moon. It's just so foreign, like he takes... These amazing photos of uh, underwater shipwrecks or plane wrecks or just different wreck wreck sites. And with the lights and the uh, water and the murkiness and the uh, doom and gloom type of historical feeling that the images have, they just look so surreal and um, I, I just absolutely love it. Just being... That I don't really go underwater too much. Uh, I'm not a big scuba diver. Uh, I actually did a course many, many years back, and uh, I didn't. I didn't love it. I mean, it was it was a lot of fun, but I just I felt like it wasn't my uh, wasn't my jam underwater. I'm more of a in the mountains type of guy on land. But um, I love and appreciated when other people go to these unexplored or rarely explored. Places that we have under the water. And again, the images that he has are um, are pretty, pretty amazing. So definitely check him out. I'll put all the uh, necessary links in the show notes. And yeah, I hope you guys are keeping safe. I just got back to New York recently and it is a very, very different feeling than Connecticut. I must say, very different. There's an energy here in the air that is, um, it's hard to put your finger on it but it's it, it's palpable it's it, New York has gone through a lot of changes in the last few months and being here on the ground it's it's visible you can feel it you can see it and i guess we'll have to see what the future holds for uh for New York City but for now you know i want you guys to to listen to this podcast enjoy it alex was uh really great for coming on and chatting to me about scuba diving about how he got into it and it just did the the insane amount of work and dedication that goes into finding these type of underwater uh rec sites so i hope you guys enjoy this episode and again if you have any requests comments anything shoot me an email it is in the show notes and yeah, without further ado, here is this week's guest, Alex Dawson.
1: The genuinely interested
0: Hey, Alex, how you doing? I'm great,
1: thank you. Is it how Alex or Alexander? I'm good, man. Thanks. I'm born as Alexander, but uh, nobody calls me Alexander except one sales guy at my old, at the old company I worked to. He used to say Alexander to me, but he's the only person. Not even my parents has ever said Alexander. So it's oh Pat. really, <laughs> <Alex>. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but passport will say Alexander.
0: But How Port. come he likes the long name?
1: Yeah, uh, uh, I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, I think it sounded more fancy.
0: Yeah, and like, and he likes
1: fancy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: Alexander sounds like something out of like a uh, royalty, you know? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. But uh, I, yeah, it's funny because there are, there are people that like to say either like your full name or just like a portion of your name. Like my name, originally how I was born was uh, Roy, right? And then oh. like, and then everyone shortened it to Roy. And then, kind of, Roy just stuck. And then now, there's a few people that'll say like the the original name, but for the like my my, my parents, I would say even not even now, even my dad would just call me Roy now. I think uh, maybe my mom and a couple other people would like use the original name. For the most part, everyone just people like short names. <laughs> they just want to shorten it as much as possible. Exactly the fast way. <laughs> <laughs> So, hey, so yeah, tell us a little bit about
1: yourself. Uh, I know you are in Stockholm, Sweden. Yes, I'm in Stockholm, Sweden, and uh, I am a scuba diver since 27 years. And um, I guess we're going to talk about scuba diving and underwater photography today, kind of, or? Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. I mean, your
0: your photos are pretty amazing. And that's, you know, I, I, every time I look, I'm like, wow, that's, it's, it's almost like you went to Mars and you took pictures on Mars. Like, that's the equivalent. It's just, it's so foreign. And especially when you see like with the lighting and the shipwreck and like the history and everything involved, it's just, it looks like out of, you know, uh, like aliens, like outer space.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm trying to show, especially people that don't dive, what it's like to be underwater. Uh, I feel that uh, I'm so inspired by the underwater world that I really want to share it, just so that everybody can see. I know that divers already see it, but it's quite common that my friends say... um, It always looks better on your pictures than it was in real life. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of enhance the world a little bit, but um, it's, it's, I, I do it the way I experience it. I'm trying to capture the experience since we are living in a 3D world and my images can only come out in 2D. I have to like enhance the feeling of the diving and the underwater world and the scenery. So that's that's what I try to do there. So,
0: how did this passion for you know for scuba diving for the ocean for photography how did it start?
1: Scuba diving started uh, in Greece, meeting uh, two girls at a beach when I was nineteen with my friend, and they introduced us to snorkeling or skin diving, as you would call it in America. And uh, we knew nothing about it. And we had these big cyclops that you would have in the 80s, 90s. And uh, we were complaining about hurting our heads when we would dive down, because as you dive down, the pressure increases, so you have to equalize your ears. We knew nothing about that. So (laughs) we, we were total amateurs. But they taught us everything and taught us how to equalize. And they told us stories about how they have friends back home in Sweden who go scuba diving in lakes. I really hate lakes, uh, still hate lakes. Uh, really? Yeah, I don't go swimming in lakes. I I, I really don't like dark, murky waters. Yeah, I, I would say I, I probably have water phobia, even though I'm a scuba diver. <laughs> Well, that's so I, weird. <laughs> I, I, I do feel protected in my scuba gear and with the dry suit on and you know yes. the only thing that touches water is basically around my mouth that's the <laughs> only part that comes in contact with water so
0: what about like a, like a crystal clear
1: lake like um, yeah that's fine crystal yeah? clear is fine but dark murky waters and that's what lakes are in sweden so they told us about how their friends would go and dive at night and just gave me the goosebumps and then they would go down and to the bottom and sit at the bottom I'm like I'm oh, panicking like, by now yeah. <laughs> and, and then they would switch off their lights and I was oh. like I'm dead <laughs> oh, Jesus. No, that's- uh, but somehow I was uh, also they somehow catched my attention and it Uh, I got interested somehow and back in the 90s we had something in Stockholm called the Stockholm Water Festival Mm -hmm. which was a huge event it was the largest festival in the 90s uh, in Stockholm it was a two week long festival and every year they had something called the water pass which in Swedish mean a leveler so it's kind of play on words there like a leveler used for construction uh-huh. and in this uh, little book that you would get with like different tickets there was try on scuba so we just came home the water festival started and we saw this ticket to try scuba diving so me and my friend we went and tried scuba diving where we met uh, a guy uh, that uh, He could sell sand in the Sahara Desert to a thirsty person. So he got us onto the course, no problem there. Uh, And I don't regret that at all. Uh, Back home,
0: we say like to like someone's (laughs) a really good salesman, will say like he can sell ice to Eskimos.
1: Exactly. Same thing, same thing. So that's the guy. And later we ended up working for him actually at the dive center in the Canary Islands. So yes. Yeah, and he he's, he was he's one of the best bosses I've ever worked for. I really like him, so that was a good experience. But that's how we got into diving. And uh, then me and my friend, we were diving as much as we could. And uh, this was we were 19 years old. We were young and a little bit stupid or like not so careful, you know. Yeah. So we started with. Uh, we did a lot of diving we started with uh, ice diving without lines so we would go into a hole in the ice and have no uh, line wow. which you're supposed to do up to the surface we did a lot of crazy bad stuff
0: because <laughs> your that. your eyelids can can shut can shut right because like no no no, then, no, like, no, no 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 oh.
1: no 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 that's no 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 but it's uh, if if you lose the visibility or if you lose your mask or something then you might not find your way back to the hole Or maybe the ice moves or, yeah, many things can happen. So we did a lot of crazy things in the early 90s. And also a lot of cave diving involved between lakes, those tunnels between these lakes and that we would go diving under the ice. So we survived somehow. And then we educated ourselves more and learned more about safety and diving. We became dive masters and... Yeah, got the proper training with the, the ice certification. And and then we started working with scuba diving. Uh, I went to Egypt in 1997 to work as a dive master on board a, sail, a tall ship. Wow. That took 32 guests. So that was my first experience. In the Red Sea? In the Red Sea, uh, home port Hurgada, And uh, we would... Uh, be out like two to three weeks at a time or sometimes maybe four weeks and then come back and switch guests and get new supplies for the boat and cleaning and all that stuff. So that was a cool experience. So you went to Sharm Sheikh. We never went to Sharm Sheikh that time uh, uh, when I lived in Egypt uh, because it was i think there was maybe some issues with charm uh, i can't really remember or if it had to do with this was a very big boat and i don't know if it had to do with the clearance uh, or something like that yeah that i, I really i really don't know why we never we were close to charm because we dived ras mohammed and we dived the thistle gorm and all the nice wrecks there but we never went all the way into harbor <laughs> yeah
0: cuz i've heard the, i've heard that like those underwater dives are just
1: absolutely amazing in in that area yes ras mohammed is uh, and especially if we're, if we're talking 80s and 90s i mean it was unbelievable uh, i th- hopefully now after i mean when traveling has stopped a little bit due to corona maybe the reefs has regenerated and the fish and sharks and stuff has come back when there's not Hundred divers there every day i don't know it's going to be very interesting to see how the world underwater has changed when we get to go back to these places that have been i, f- I guess closed for a couple of months anyway
0: i never even so, thought of that yeah like yeah. our 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 footprint on the oceans i, I obviously i know what our footprint is yeah. like from from yeah. above but i never considered what it is from below like all these yeah. you know divers coming in year out year in and now there's nothing yeah.
1: Yeah, back in the back nine. Yeah, back in the '90s when we were when I worked there, uh, it was it could be up to 25 liverboards on the Thistle Gorm, which uh, and for you who don't know, Thistle Gorm is one of the world's fam- most famous bricks. It was discovered by uh, Cousteau in the '60s, I think, or '50s, or something like that, and then it was forgotten and then rediscovered. Uh, late eighties or early nineties, and it's a military ship that was sunk by German uh, airplanes. British ship, and it has hundreds of uh, vehicles inside and uh, on on the trucks. On the back of the trucks, there's motorcycles, there's rifles, there's wow. military boots, there's helmets. There- all all still there. All still there. There's a few train uh, i can't remember what you call it in english but there's like parts of trains there there's parts of airplanes it's it's wow. it's a toy store for divers for <laughs> and anybody that's interested in history or military or it's such a cool dive and it's a huge huge ship and we're talking 100, 100 plus meters long wow. it sits at 30 meters which is in feet i guess 90 90 yeah. 100 feet maybe divide by three i think. Yeah. Yeah. No, oh, uh, times,
0: th- times, times, times three. three, times three. Times three. Yes. Um, so, I mean, when you're diving through these wrecks, is, is it, or is it any part of you that is just absorbing the, the history, the story of what happened or is that stuff that happens afterwards when you go and, and you look at the pictures that you took and you maybe like reflect on what happened under the water?
1: Uh, When it comes to the Thistle Gorm, I can't really remember, because the first time I visited it was 1995, in the summer. Uh, We were three friends traveling to Egypt to just have heard heard about that wreck, and we really wanted to visit it. Mm -hmm. And I don't even remember liking the dive back then. Really? Uh, Yeah. Uh, I think I wasn't... First of all, at that time, I was not into wreck diving at all. And... uh, there Was so many divers I remember, and back in those days we dived air, so it was not enriched air like as nitrox or any other mixes. So the bottom times at 30 meters were fairly short, so it was quite short dives. And we were on a liverboard, so as you accumulate dives throughout the week, the dives get shorter and shorter and shorter the more you dive. And yeah, I think we did, I think. I'm pretty sure we did five dives that day when we were at the physical and you get so exhausted and you get very short dive times then because back in those days we didn't do any decompression diving either. It was like we followed the table and then we so for, we go
0: up for the for uh, for the for the people who don't know too much
1: about diving what's uh decompression diving? Decompression diving is when you have to slowly get up to the surface because your tissues in your body has been oversaturated with uh, nitrogen uh, if you dive with air. And uh, so what you usually do uh, is that you make a stop at three meters or five meters or six meters. Today, you have computers that tells you all these details uh, And when you do technical diving, which I'm into also, when you dive with mixed gases like helium and other gases, then then you can get decompressions if you do, let's say, a a 50 meter dive, 150 feet dive, then you might get your first stop at already 21 meters or maybe even deeper, maybe 27 meters. Uh, And then you have to do slow intervals, shallower and shallower and shallower. uh, And the and to create like a, I don't know what you would say, but like a, uh, do you say convex curve? If you look at it as a profile, it should be like a convex curve bending slowly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so. Uh, so how do you decide? I mean, I, I guess I,
0: I just don't know too much about it, but how do you decide what mixture of gas you put in based on? Is that based on the depth it's that you based, go
1: it's, it's based on depth for uh, the nitrogen narcosis or the depth narcosis. Uh, uh, so the deeper you go, the more helium you need to add, usually. Uh, and uh, And then you don't want the partial pressure of oxygen to be too high either, because that's also... Very bad. I don't need to go into details, and uh, so so it's the mix, uh, the the depth, or the dive site decides, or not decides, but you have to decide to dive an accurate or what's a a mix that is good for that particular dive site, and this is what you learn during your diving training. Yeah, because I um, I did,
0: I think it was a two star course uh for diving like that was a long time ago probably like 12 or 14 years ago I, I remember exactly but i do remember that they took us out into the mediterranean sea and um it wasn't like it wasn't like a, a nice part of the Mediterranean. it was kind of like murky and it was like mm. were jellyfish season so there was gazillion yeah. jellyfish everywhere and like all the time i was just looking in every direction to see that a jellyfish is not gonna just like sit on my face but I do remember that on the, I think it was the last dive, we had to go down to thirty meters, and then yes. like they they make you do like all these different tests to make sure that you're okay, yeah. and at about must have been like twenty five or twenty six meters, everything went like Fantasia on me, like yes. I just started seeing cartoons. It was almost like I took LSD, like that would yeah, be the equivalent.
1: It's 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 very different from everybody's experience, but it is like being drunk. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It was very and scary. It's very scary. You're like, yeah. okay, wait, 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 wait. What's happening? Like, I, yeah. you're aware that it shouldn't happen, and you're like, okay, I, I, I don't think this is <laughs> what's I like, and you don't want to start going like you know too too crazy or, or take out the 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 mask or take off whatever. So exactly. I started going up, and then eventually it went away. But it was a very surreal and scary
1: moment. It is very because also, also when you're a new diver, I mean, 30 meters or 90 feet is it, it's very deep. It's very deep. So there's a lot of mental stress also, which enhances the depth narcosis, which you were experiencing, which is like being drunk. Some people feel that they barely have any symptoms, and some people feel very, very, very strong uh, narcosis. And this is ver- it's not from person to person. This is from day to day, it's you can never predict when you're going to get it. So that's why w- when w- we say usually that depth narcosis starts from around 25, 30 meters, yeah. can probably happen shallower. And sometimes people can go to 50 meters and don't have any depth narcosis or at least they don't feel like they have because they're used to going deep a lot and or they do a lot of deep air dives, which is... So... so so it's uh, it's it's very different from time to time and from person to person. But what we do when we dive our mixed gases is that we always blend the mix so that it's roughly an equivalent equivalent uh, narco- narcosis depth of around twenty to twenty three meters is usually what we aim for. Yeah. Sometimes it can be less. Sometimes it can be more. But around there is. What the training says in general. How
0: long does it take uh, until you can be a dive
1: master? Uh, for me, who dived a lot, I would I would say it took me about two years, uh, which is probably a that's probably a good amount of time. I mean, you can do it much faster. I think if you go and wave with your dollars in say Mexico or something, I'm sure you can be a dive master within a month. Yeah, and it will cost you. And it will cost you maybe like two, three thousand dollars. Wow, something like that. But don't uh, they have like uh,
0: a certain amount of hours they have to reach, or how? how do Yeah, they...
1: yeah, you have to. I think, uh, I think it was hundred hours, hundred dive hours, or maybe fifty when I did it. I can't really remember. It was a long time ago. It's twenty five years ago. You know. Yeah.
0: <laughs> 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 I don't that even remember matter. what
1: I had for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yeah, you you're it's morning for you, but I've had I've had lunch yeah. Already. <laughs> yeah it's still early. Yeah. I'm still I still I'm still
0: like mid coffee, so yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, I'm close to dinner <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> it's still so when does the sun go down in uh, in the summertime?
1: Uh, at summer solstice, I would say it goes down around 11, 11. Wow. yeah, eleven, yeah, maybe just before eleven. But then wow. you have twilight to like one, and then the twilight starts again at like two thirty. So it's really only dark, or it's barely not dark in Stockholm. But if you go slightly further up north, then you have twenty four seven. Jesus, for how long? Uh, it goes pretty fast, I would say. It's all, we already noticed difference, and it's only been like five weeks since summer solstice. But we can already, the nights are getting darker already. We can feel, but the sun is. Uh, rising very early in the morning still it's like three thirty, four o'clock in the morning or something it's it's kind of annoying because our bedroom is facing the sun so yeah it would have we been. definitely wake up when the sun <laughs> does it
0: mess does it mess with you I
1: mean with your sleep it has to uh, uh, yeah a little bit a little bit but I use these airplane masks uh, that you put for uh, uh, over your eyes and that, yeah. that's great like a, so, I mean, a private blackout curtain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I mean, is there a
0: whole, uh, or maybe this is this is just kind of maybe more of a U.S. way of thinking about things. But whenever like there is a problem here in the U.S., there 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 is an industry that springs up around that that problem to sell yes. something to to oh, solve yes. it. Right. There's there's a this is just the capitalistic way of doing things here in the U.S. Absolutely. But it, is there something like that in Sweden where like there? Uh, oh, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. We could have like uh, motorized blinds on the outside that goes down when the sun goes up and things like that. But it's, it's just a matter of wanting to spend that money because it's a couple of thousand dollars and you can do a lot of other fun stuff for a thousand dollars. So,
0: yeah, it's yeah. just not been a priority. OK,
1: <laughs> it, it will be one day. Yeah,
0: because <laughs> even for me, like in Connecticut, where I've been staying for the past few months, um, the sun, I don't know, it, it goes up pretty fast. And like the blinds aren't, you know, I don't know, they, like they just, it, it they might as well not be there. It's just the, the sun just cuts right through them. So I wake up every day around like five, like around six, I would say, or if, if, they, if it would be like darker in the room, I'd probably wake up around like seven, seven thirty, you know,
1: I totally understand. It's so nice to sleep in darkness. Dark <laughs> dark cold room is perfect to sleep in. Yeah. But, yeah. We missed that part when we built the house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least we got the view.
0: <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, it looks beautiful. Like some of the places um that, that I've seen in, in Sweden and um in the neighboring like Norway and Finland as well. Like all that whole area just looks absolutely amazing
1: it's it's very beautiful, it's very beautiful. It's probably similar to some part like some of the northern parts of the us I, I can imagine that it looks a little bit the same yeah but it's, you... and it's very untouched also I mean yeah, there's pristine. very few, very few people in Sweden, especially if you get out of the major cities i mean it's it's a lot of uh, nature yeah How many people live in Sweden? I think just around 10 million.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's nothing. That's like and New I, York City.
1: Yeah, and I think it's on the surface of almost like California.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. Like you have 10 million people here in New York City, and that's without tourists. That's just people who <laughs> live. You know? <laughs> that's yeah. insane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So
1: we're we're spread out a little bit.
0: <laughs> no, that's amazing. So I'm so I'm assuming. You know, if you started um, scuba diving at age around like nineteen or twenty, uh, so scuba diving was the first love, and then photography came after.
1: Yes, i I learned how to to I learned how to shoot actually or take pictures underwater. I didn't start on land. I really started oh, wow. underwater, and I started back in the days, of course, when it was film. So you were limited to thirty six exposures per dive so you had to do a lot of diving and uh, and you not like today you take a picture you see the result instantly you, I took a lot of notes I did a lot of trial and error I did uh, uh, yeah I did a lot of testing I uh, and I finally finally after like shooting six, six years underwater roughly I was Pretty good, uh, and uh, especially good at the technical part, which was an extreme benefit when you're shooting film, Mm -hmm. and especially underwater. So that was uh, was a big advantage for me. But then uh, digital started showing, and I had to make a choice. Either I could be a grumpy old man sitting in a corner and swearing about all the new technology, Oh, these would, kids. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or I would just have to jump on the train and just follow the technical development and just my six years of hard training, a lot of diving, a lot of cost, I would say, was involved in a lot of thinking mm-hmm. was more or less worthless the day it became digital because the technique, uh, the technical part didn't play any major role anymore yeah Uh, it wasn't at least the most important uh which was definitely if you couldn't if you didn't nail it technically on film and we were shooting slide film uh, i i what you call that is it slide film not uh not negative like like slides instead yeah yeah. So, so and they had a very very limited dynamic range and things like that so and very, very, like they would cut the highlights, they would cut the blacks, and it was very punchy. And but when you nailed it, it looked great. Yeah. If you if you missed it by a third stop or by two thirds of a stop, it was just garbage. <laughs> <laughs> so, so so it was a hard way, and it was it was really difficult accepting uh, to let go of all that uh, training that was that I had put into it when the digital came. But I knew that if I don't jump on this train now, I'm going to be passed by 15 other trains. And and I felt that I was in a pretty good position. I had a lot of assignments with uh, magazines like uh, Swedish type magazines and outside magazine and, yeah, many other magazines. So I felt I'm just going to go for it. And I really hated digital the first two years, three years, four, year, four years, I would say. Oh, wow. And I really hated it. Why? But that's uh, because it, uh, I don't know how much, yeah, you know about photography, but I don't know about the listeners, how much they know about photography. But, but as a professional, you always shoot in a raw format, and a raw format is uh, a is similar to when they shoot movies in Hollywood and they shoot in log file. It's soft, it's no contrast, it's no color, there's no black point, no white point, there's uh, almost no white balance in it. I mean, it's just flat, it looks mm-hmm. shit, and it's not even sharp. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's what a raw file is. And I usually say like this, the cheaper the camera you have, the better the outcome will be in camera. The more expensive camera you have, the, the more it takes from you as uh, you need to know the uh, uh, digital image processing in yeah. Photoshop or whatever you're using. That's that's like key. If you don't know that, especially shooting RAW, uh, don't do it. So, so my first advice to everybody that asks me what... What should, which camera should I know? It's like, are you going to shoot, be shooting raw? Then you should re- get really good at uh, Adobe Camera Raw or Lightroom or Photoshop. Those things are so essential when you are shooting digital images. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Otherwise, yeah knew- you, you're better off just shoot, you're shooting with your modern uh, telephone, cell phone otherwise. Because they, they the, the results will look better with them.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, if you look at a photo that, you know, you, uh, take whatever Nikon D six hundred, whatever eight yeah. ten, whatever good camera that's out there. If if you're shooting with that camera, right, and and you take a great photo, but you do not use Photoshop. Yeah. it just it won't be up to par with what everyone else is doing like between no. the, the the color and everything else that you have to fix after i'm not saying like completely redo it but everything has to go through some sort of a post-processing yes um filtering uh yeah you know it has and to go uh, through
1: that. yeah and it's and it's not a lot i mean it takes i mean if it, I, i've been working with the uh, because 2004 I started uh, the commercial photography business mm-hmm. so I got into commercial photography and I've been shooting for like major clothing brands like h and m and yeah other major brands and it's been uh, extremely developing because I also worked together with a lot of professional retouchers that yeah. sit eight to fifteen hours a day just editing images and I of course, uh, learned a lot during these years, yeah. and um, it's just you have to know these things to be able to get the most out of your footage. Mm-hmm.
0: It's yeah. just how it is.
1: But do you think
0: that, given you know, nowadays, obviously, you know, when when I tell my uh, my niece and nephew who are smaller about things that we used to use it's it's so foreign to them right it's like it's like me talking about uh i don't know uh, paleontology it's like it's it's from another era right like they don't know about um cameras that had film they don't know about Uh, you know, CD, Walkmans, all that different stuff, right? (laughs) Telephones with a cord. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Telephone with a cord. Uh, Not being able to, to, you know, to call someone abroad because like my dad would sit like, oh, it's been two minutes. It's too expensive. Now I can sit on WhatsApp and talk to someone from another country for a hundred hours and it costs zero. So, yeah. but do you think like as a photographer, this was a huge advantage because when you had only 32 uh, shots underwater, you would really, you know, try to juxtapose uh, oppose something, or you'd look at the lighting, or you'd look at the composition. You wouldn't just like shoot like you would with digital, because now in digital I can shoot a thousand images in two seconds, you know, and then later I can see okay, you know, out of those one thousand here, those here here are four good ones. Whereas before, like you really had to think, strategize, and maybe that gives you, you know, a better foothold going into digital.
1: Yes, that that, that was also something I had a big hard uh, hard time with switching from analog to digital Mm -hmm. because I was so used to doing this priority. I'm doing a 45-minute dive. I see this fantastic crayfish in the beginning of the dive. I've only seen it once before. Should I spend 10 images or 20 images, like half of the roll? 36 was the maximum. people who don't know how much film uh, how many images it could take on the film time so it was like will I see something even better later in the dive you know on land you can just pop another roll in but on a dive site you're like you have to make this constant priority like is this good enough should I waste so I ended up shooting basically one shot at everything I saw and sometimes when you were coming to the end of the dive you're like Damn it, 20 exposures left. And you really don't want to start the next dive with only 20 exposures because then maybe you get this perfect, I don't know, dolphin or whatever in the beginning of next dive and then you're out of film. So <laughs> you always wanted to start with so making these priorities and also when you found something that you really liked, did I nail it in the exposure or is it a third of a stop too dark? Is it a third of a stop overexposed? Is it worth spending three shots more on this? I was like constantly. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And, but I was so sure at that time of my technical uh, abilities. So I actually always, always shot one motive, one shot. It was like, I would switch, 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 switch. And that has totally changed in the digital era. I mean, now, yeah, like you said, it can pop 100 images on just one subject, you know. (laughs) How do you, I always wonder, like, how do you
0: choose, right? Like, because like we said, like with digital now, you can be shooting, you know, in one dive, a thousand or 5,000, whatever it is that you want to shoot as many images as you want to shoot. But then you go up and you go to your computer and you put the the, the memory disk uh, inside the computer and you see all these images. And, you know, how do you from dwindle it down from a thousand images to one or two? Or like, wow, these are the most spectacular that it took. Like, how how do you pick?
1: That's the most difficult part. That's where the real job starts. The shooting is the easy part. Uh, It's choosing images that is... The most difficult part. I usually let the images sit two to three weeks. That's uh, by preference because that kind of takes me away. It kind of kills my darlings a little bit because I forget about the dye. You know, bad short-term memory and all that stuff. So next time I look at it, maybe two weeks later or something like that. It's almost like then I can look at it more like uh, would you say like object like objectively. Object- exactly yeah and i like that i don't like to have too much connection or emotion with a picture because you might be like oh but i've been wanting to take this image for so long i I, I don't want any of that Mm. to matter when i choose an image i it's it's an image is something that you just know when it's right yeah Uh, and 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 i want to have that feeling and not 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 uh, look at it as a memory from the dive like i really want to look at it and just say oh that i can already see when i have like 100 thumbnails on my screen i can already say oh that's gonna be that that's the one i want and then you look at it enlarged and you're like oh maybe not perfect because that fin is pointing wrong way and this is like yeah maybe too much of the sunlight uh, and then you go three frames forward, three frames backward, and then maybe you have the, where every, when oh, everything is accurate. But I, I usually, I just usually then after two, three weeks, go through the whole film very fast, pick out, mark uh, maybe, yeah, mark anything that I think stands out. And then I move them to a new folder and then I go through and sometimes it's 10 images, sometimes it's 100 images that I mark. And then I start like really looking at them, and and then what I also do is that I maybe pick two or three images from a dive at this point, but then maybe three months later, or six months later, or two years later, I get back to that folder and I'm like, oh, why didn't I see, why didn't I see this last time? Yeah, I that's my. I, bad. I, I have my favorites, and and I change, and my mood changes, and what I like changes, and. Uh, there's so many things that matter. And and maybe, or I have maybe learned a new technique or I maybe got interested in a, a new way of shooting. Like, oh, I like images when they are like this. Yeah. And then I go back into old folders and I'm like, oh no, this is the favorite. So then I do re-edit on that one and then I post it uh, like on my Instagram or something like that. And th- that's how I like to do it. I really don't like picking out like, Oh these are 100 images and I'm going to edit these and case closed. I don't uh, th- that's not how I like to work. I really like like it to grow with time. That's really interesting.
0: No it's a great way of looking at things cuz you want it's almost like looking at things from um, a fresh set of eyes, right? You want yes. to be you want to be removed from the emotions of what happened on on the dive or on the shoot. And then just look at it without that connection to when you were there, you were thinking, oh, this is going to be great. And then later you were looking on the computer and you might not think it's great, but because you wanted it to be so great, you might choose it. So if you have two, three, four weeks, that gives you that perspective.
1: Exactly. And especially when you come back a year or two years later, it's like, you're like, why did I not pick that image before? This is so (laughs) great, this one, but you know, A lot has happened in two years and I have developed maybe and things like this so it's so perfect to go go back to old folders and just like wow this is a stunning image uh it's I I love rediscovering archive images it's it's really fun so I I I do that a lot uh also to keep up the diversity in my flow in the feed and things like that because it's a little like in these times during COVID-19 I mean it's quite boring for my viewers to only watch like me diving because I've basically only been diving in mines uh, lately in Sweden and they're more or less all the same, the images. Uh, I mean, even though the environment is slightly different, but even I get bored with that kind of images. So I want to freshen it up a little bit, pop in a little bit of Mediterranean, a little bit of Red Sea, French Polynesia, yeah, you know, just mix it up a little bit. I think I, I think that makes it more interesting for the viewer. Actually, I agree. Um, and it's more interesting for me also. Uh, I get bored if I have to do the same all the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, was the,
0: um, how, how was the original? Um, I guess reaction when you started posting these type of pictures on your uh, on your social media feed. Yeah.
1: Uh, I was running a private account in the beginning and uh, that I started maybe 2014 or something like that. And, and I have a very classical image that has been flying around the internet since 2005 basically. Uh, it was on cover of like 10, 15 different magazines. It's my uh, tiger shark image uh, where it's a tiger shark straight from the front. Oh yeah, sun rays yeah. coming through the water. I was actually going to ask
0: you about that picture. Like, yeah, is, yeah. Wasn't that like
1: a... Yeah, that was shot in 2005 on one of the first trips uh, in the Bahamas at Tiger Beach. And uh, that image has gone crazy viral. And when I started my Instagram, uh, one of these major, major accounts with like 15 million users uh, shared that image. So I got like of requests like within an hour but I had my children on these pictures and you know it was like yeah. I didn't have it as a business account but then uh, 2018 when I was with a friend of mine in Iceland he said you really need to up your game and make your Instagram account professional instead yeah so I decided okay let's do this but you have to help me so he help me a little bit and uh, I started going through archives, and I I just started publishing pure underwater images and making it more of a professional feeling of my account. And it went viral pretty fast, I would say, and uh, got shared by very large diving organizations and things like that very fast, and, and the account just grew from... Yeah, I was like at 200 followers like two and a half years ago and I think I'm almost at 60,000 today and it's just growing naturally uh, because my images are everywhere and people are sharing them and most of the time tagging me not always but <laughs> it's it's fairly good. <laughs> yeah. 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 There
0: uh, is a tendency to steal on social media at times but yeah, for the most part I think people get I think people you know, also when, when you see a photo, you want to know who the, uh, artist or who the photographer, or who the person is in that image. So I think for the most part, tagging someone nowadays has just become standard because.
1: Yeah. And, and I think it's, I mean, it's fair to do, I think. It I mean, I would never think of sharing anything that, that it's not tagged. I mean, yeah. it's. It is we still have copyright rules <laughs> yeah
0: it is yeah there's I don't know I don't know what the plagiarism rules are for t- taking stuff from social media like I was uh, at a at a podcast a couple of weeks ago with a f- with a photographer um Sophie Gamon and, and she's she's a French photographer. she lives in New York and she's been uh, shooting uh dogs for many years in shelters and she does amazing work and um, she was saying like you know I would I would sometimes see, my images on like products in Brazil, and yeah. you know, yeah. yeah, no, and no one's paying me for this. <laughs> like they no, just put all no. my images, put it on all these products, and they're selling it. Oh so yeah, that does happen.
1: My my images are in uh, Alibaba in China on shower curtains and everything, but really, there's, and there's nothing. nothing you can do. No, not really. <laughs> that, that really sucks. <laughs> it's yeah. just how it is. <laughs>
0: Why did you specifically want to focus on on wreck sites, on wreckage sites? Is, was there a certain point we decided to focus more of your attention on that rather than you know the uh, the other you know, uh, I don't know shooting sharks or other fish?
1: Yeah, it was uh, it was a big turning point. We have to get back to the championship again. Back at that time, I was traveling to the west coast of Sweden all the time because I didn't do any diving in Stockholm. Mm -hmm. It was like not even on my map because we only have wrecks. There's not a single fish basically in the Arctic. Oh, there is, but I've never seen one. (laughs) Uh, So so as a nature photographer, as I saw myself back then, I just had to go to the West coast of Sweden where it's more like uh, British Columbia and like it's good marine life with starfishes and and, um, all kinds of weird looking things. And we would travel to the west coast of sweden up to 10 times a year maybe it's about 5 hour drive mm-hmm. and uh, or norway was also also visited like 2 3 times a year and uh, that's what i did uh, until 2007 or 2008 when i was asked by the editors of the diving magazine in sweden to do uh, article about wrecks in stockholm Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, okay, let's I I have to do it because I was like starting to get a little bit interested in technical diving, this diving with uh, mixed gases and decompression and things like that. So it was all natural. And uh, so I went with uh, a guy in southern Stockholm out to some wrecks and I got totally hooked the first time. I think we were lucky with visibility. We were lucky. He knows wrecks very well. And I just got into it like basically overnight, it it went so fast. And at that point, I really got focused on Rex and the cameras at 2008, Nikon released their first good camera, digital camera, in my opinion, for what I needed, the Nikon D3. Yeah. Uh, which was, it was full frame, uh, first full frame, uh, and it... Oh, not first full frame, because they had the D1X and stuff, but first good full frame, 12 megapixel, I think it was. Uh, fantastic on high ISO. It could shoot at 12,800 ISO with decent results. And that was good back in 2008. It was a revolution in uh, digital cameras, and especially as an underwater photographer, shooting ambient light. So I I bought that camera that year and I got into the wreck photography and I just got caught at it, caught at that. And I just started discovering what Stockholm had to offer, which was totally amazing. I mean, all the wrecks that I had missed for the first 15 years of my diving life. (laughs) (laughs) And and I dived with this group quite a lot. And uh, in 2010, this group found... uh, uh, a wreck in the Åland Islands, which is between Sweden and Finland, where the world's oldest champagne. So I was. Oh, the yeah, official- I was going to ask you about that. Yes, I was the official photographer on that uh, job and I took pictures. That was. Uh, obviously used all over the world in media and stuff like that to show these old champagne bottles that date back to early 18th century wow uh, and uh, and i was just sold on rec photography and then the cameras kept getting better and and uh, i started shooting more and more ambient light and not using any strokes or lights on my camera and and that's 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 the beginning of my rec photography i would say and since then, I've never looked back at things that, yeah, like reef life, really, unless I'm like in the Red Sea or yeah. Pacific or something like that.
0: Did, so did you guys manage to salvage those bottles, the, the champagne bottles?
1: We, we salvaged a total of, I think, 180 bottles or something like that, where wow. I think 90 or something of them were in mint condition cos uh, we had to we had to they were very deep they were sitting in 150 meters uh, 150 feet uh, of water 50 meters mm-hmm. and we had to seal them and secure them down at the bottom uh, with like uh, bicycle tires that we would use the zip ties to lock because the corks would pop as the pressure decreased when you when we lifted them up out of the water. So we put them in big crates, 12 and 12 at the bottom, and we zip-tied every bottle with the bicycle tire twice, and, uh, and then we put a lid on it. It was foamy and everything, because we knew that the value of these bottles were... It was very expensive. We we figured that much out anyway. And how, uh, much, how much was a bottle? Do you think the, these bottles they sell at auctions at Christie's and uh, Sotheby's these days for around thirty thousand euros each? So like like forty thousand dollars maybe. Jesus. Each 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 <laughs> each. Uh. And the bottles. So they were all recorked uh, recorked uh, when they were taken to the surface, and they were all taking samples from each bottle making sure that it was in fine quality. And they discovered that it was champagne from uh, four known champagne houses uh, that we still know of today. One of them being Vogue uh, And uh, I think there was another one called Jacquesson or something like that. And then there was two more. I can't remember the names of them, but so that's pretty cool. And we also and we also found beer which they actually when we got the beer bottle up i accidentally broke it it was not on purpose and 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 they're like oh it's beer in this so they actually took care of that yeast culture and now they're brewing beer out of that yeast culture from the 18th century really using, yeah so so it was pretty cool <laughs> i mean
0: that's a that's a crazy feeling right to find it's it's like I feel like as a kid, right? I, I think everyone watched a movie where, like, they would find like a message in a bottle, right? Like yeah. the the movies would have like a message in a bottle, and there's something so like romantic and 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 crazy about that notion that you would find a note from the other side of the world or from something that's been floating around for fifty years. So, like, how's that feeling of finding something that's been there for? couple of hundred years just sitting underneath the ocean. I mean, that's every, every kid's uh, dream basically.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it was so treasure, treasure. Yeah. Yeah. It was real treasure hunting. I mean, I was mostly focused on the photography. I wasn't really helping the guys salvage the bottles, but uh, I was photographing them as they were doing it and filming also. Uh, but it was, yeah, it was such an amazing experience. Uh, it was also very hard day, hard work. I mean, it's deep, Like I said, 150 feet. So we did long, long decompression dives. I think the salvage guys, they did uh, close to, I think, a bit over two, two and a half hour dives, twice a day, two times a day. And you get very tired from those long dives and we were filling gas all night. And, you know, it was was an operation that was running for two weeks with probably less than five hours of sleep every night for continuously two weeks so it was a lot of work but it was worth every so i don't remember much of it i have to say because you were so tired it was like it's just fragments here and there and uh, but it was like you have pictures Yes, I'm very glad I have the pictures. <laughs> That's the most important. <laughs> yeah. So,
0: I mean, are 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 there any estimates out there as to how many wrecks are, are, are you know, across our oceans that have yeah, not been found, I, that I, have not I, been found?
1: I I've heard a number for the Baltic Sea, which is the sea between Sweden and Finland and Poland and Germany, and I've heard a number of around. 80,000 known, um, what do you say, boats that has gone, yeah, wreckage sites, exactly. 80,000? 80,000, and I think there's probably less than a couple of thousand found. Wow. Yeah.
0: So there's still so much to explore.
1: Oh, yes. (laughs) And that's just (laughs) in the Baltic Sea. In the world, that's probably billions. It's probably millions of wrecks, yeah, in the world. But I mean, in coral seas, they will be totally overgrown by corals, so you won't even... There's so many wrecks that will never be found unless they have some kind of extremely good equipment for just spotting gold coins or something like that 15 meters through a reef or, you know, I I don't know what kind of technology there is, but... And the oceans are so freaking big, <laughs> and people, yeah, and people only see the surface. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now all that surface is covered
0: in plastic. So soon, all we're going to see is only plastic. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's terrible. That's terrible. Um, I, I read that in micro in Micronesia there are over sixty Japanese warships uh, that were destroyed by the American forces in in World yes. War Two. Yeah. And in, um, um, Truck Lagoon and uh, Bikini Atoll. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I saw some of the photos that they look absolutely amazing, and like like you said, a lot of them were just already like covered in in coral and kind yes. of just part of the landscape.
1: Yeah, that was my first trip canceled due to COVID nineteen because the president of Micronesia decided to close the borders already thirty first of uh, January. Oh, okay, so, smart. Yeah. So they didn't get any cases, but they also, I never made my trip that was supposed to start uh, February 5th. So four, yeah. days, four days before departure, we got this letter sorry, your trip is cancelled. Oh, so we were sad. supposed to be on a liveaboard there, diving truck lagoon for a week. That would have been amazing, but oh well. Maybe next we'll, year. Maybe next year, exactly. Let's hope for it.
0: Are there uh, people that you know kind of like treasure hunters people who dedicate their
1: lives to just oh, finding yes. treasures. oh yes really a lot, of, a lot of them i think i don't i'm not so much uh, into that i don't read much about it but i know there's plenty of them and they do find treasures and some of them find the treasures that are worth like billions you know yeah. yeah 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 i mean i think they just recently found some oh, not recently but in the past 10 years they found something out of Galapagos or if it was Coco Island or something like that. Mm. that was really, really high value in.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I'm surprised they don't have a reality show here in America about it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> treasure hunters oh, in the ocean. Yeah, they have a reality show about everything, so I'm surprised they don't have.
1: Yeah, a it's I think because the chances of finding it. I mean, they they can't even they can't even find the plane that went down. You know the the Malaysian one. Malaysian one, exactly. I mean, the oceans are so big and impossible to look for things in. Yeah, so it's it's not strange. <laughs> yeah. I always say, like when I'm when I'm
0: flying over, um, you know, the Atlantic from from the US into Europe or in the Middle East, I uh, <laughs> I always think in my head, as, as once we're oh, I don't know I like I'm not I'm not scared of flying. I don't love it, especially when like we have a lot of turbulence. But whenever we're over the ocean, I'm like, ah, oh, shit, like. I just hope we don't like crash in the ocean. But once we're over land, I'm like I don't care. Like once we're over land, I'm I'm okay. As long as we don't go into the ocean, I'm fine. (laughs) That's I. I, 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 There's no chance you're surviving in the ocean. It's zero possibility.
1: Yeah, I have similar feeling, and I've had this similar thought actually. It's it's also about like being lost in the ocean. It's it's frightening. It's very frightening to be lost. Yeah, Uh, I mean. Your shark if you if, if you if you die you kind of want the body to be recovered even if it's in hundred pieces yeah yeah <laughs> or like or like at
0: least on land you know there's there's a, a chance if you have a good pilot like potentially you could survive you know you you might need to eat like I don't know maybe some of the other passengers to survive <laughs> I don't know what you're gonna have to do depending on where you land but you have that possibility it's there like in the ocean, like over the Atlantic or Pacific, good. Yeah. That, dude. That it's just, it's so unbelievably vast. Yeah. Like the chances yeah. are just absolutely zero.
1: Yeah. And even if you land on the ocean, I mean, add cold and darkness to that. Possible. Ooh, then, then. Nothing to era. drink. Nothing to drink. No water to drink. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, but, it's not good. It's a scary thought. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you've, you've seen sharks up close. I mean, how, how is that feeling?
1: uh i've had one experience at tiger beach with the tiger sharks and that's my best so far shark experience and uh, we were sent down by below the uh, platform the aft platform of the boat we would go down in just 10 feet of water the instructor or guide would sit down straight under the platform then two people would go out on the right side, and two people would go out on the left side. We would all sit on the bottom with about three feet, no, uh, two meters, so six feet uh, in between us, so the sharks could swim freely in between us so we didn't trap them. We would have the current in our backs, so we'd sit like in a V-shape, and the guide in the middle would hold a crate with like uh, uh, fish heads and, you know, just fish stuff basically so it would create a slick slick in the water and the scent would spread in the water uh, downstream with the current so that the sharks would smell it and then the sharks slowly slowly would start coming up towards the divers and uh, i think this was 2005 i don't remember exactly but i think we had at some point we had maybe seven eight sharks at the same at the same time and um, and they would come, would be coming from all directions, you know. And we had this plastic stick in one hand, and we had the cameras in our other hand. And if it came one shark, you would put this plastic stick down in the sand in front of you. And the sharks, they swim very slowly, and they're kind of, they have really terrible vision, is what I was told back then. I have no idea. And uh, so they would bump into these sticks, and, oh, I can't swim there. So they would just turn left or right, and sometimes they would turn back to you, so you would have to move the stick to the in front of them again, so they don't bump into you. And sometimes when they turn, like really turned and swam away instead, they, you would get their whole body over yourself because oh, wow. you know they were three, four meters long or something like that. So when the shark turns, yes, the head turns, but the whole body comes like. Yeah, so it would push you like <laughs> underwater. So I've definitely been touched by sharks. I haven't touched sharks, but they've definitely touched me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they can do whatever they want. Absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, and if it would be two sharks coming, yeah, then you would use your stick. And then you would maybe use one of your fins to put in front of the other shark. If it was three, you would use like stick, fin and maybe camera. And a Spanish guy that was sitting next to me, between me and the instructor, because I was at the far end on the right side, he did that. But the camera—the uh, shark got uh, caught in his camera in the strobe arms or something like that. So it took the camera. or by Really? Accident. Yeah. And it accidentally fired a couple of shots also from its <laughs> mouth by holding the camera. So the shark took a few images. Is that the first ever shark to take photos with a camera? I have no idea. A, I, have no idea. I know it's happened many times since then. I've seen pretty fun images taken by sharks, but I don't know if this Spanish guy did anything with his images, but it was I've seen the images, so it was fun. Yeah? <laughs> I
0: mean, you could easily sell that photo, right? Like, this is one of the only photos in the world taken by a shark. I mean, that's, crazy.
1: that's pretty fun. <laughs>
0: yeah. So, I mean, how do you... I don't know. I mean, I guess because you're you're an experienced scuba di- scuba diver, maybe this isn't something that really crosses your mind. But like, are you, you know, actively trying to keep your your heart rate down? Are you trying to like working on being calm around it, or is it, or are you just
1: no naturally
0: uh, calm and not really thinking about it too much?
1: There's, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of scared of dogs, basically. Yeah, dog- uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm very uncomfortable around dogs, especially larger dogs and or dogs that like to jump. It's uh, because I'm not grown up with dogs or anything. Uh, When I see sharks, and I've heard other people say this too, you get so stunned by their graceful uh, movement in the water. By their, you you're kind of drawn to them. Mm-hmm. they're very attractive uh, and, and this is i've heard this from so many people there's i haven't heard anyone ever that has said that they've seen a shark and they had fear mm-hmm. uh, and and you have to think of this also when you're a scuba diver and maybe you're in your wetsuit you have your scuba tank on you uh, have your regulator in your mouth you're uh, you're in some kind of you feel like you're protected i know you're not but you have you have that feeling the feeling i have when i'm underwater with scuba gear is that you you are the threat to the shark that's how you feel so you're trying to back off you're trying to make the shark come closer to you and you can't get it to get closer to you. You want it to get closer, but you can't because they're too afraid of you. Wow. If you're in the surface with maybe just a snorkel and a mask and just your swimming trunks, then you're much more vulnerable. Then I don't have that feeling. Yeah. I have a very different feeling to sharks when I'm in the surface. Uh, And we also know that like the great whites, they sometimes hunt close to the surface and many surface surfers have been affected by that because when they lay on a paddle board or on the surfboard when paddle I mean they look like a turtle from down below in the silhouette yeah. uh, so I can understand that uh, I mean there's something about scuba diving with sharks that is so totally different compared to laying on the surface snorkeling or um, yeah, I don't know. I can't really describe it, but I've heard this from many people. Uh, so, so there is some because we also know this. If we breathe out a little bit, uh, like fast or something, where we make a lot of bubble noise, the sharks will go immediately. So usually, what you end up doing when you get sharks close is that you maybe blow out your bubbles through the nose instead, slowly, slowly. So you're just making these tiny bubbles popping out of your mask, not to scare the sharks away. Yeah. So, and um, I haven't so far been diving with sharks with my rebreather uh, that I'm diving these days, which is a... Uh, yeah, I can explain what a rebreather is later, but uh, we don't make bubbles, basically, so we're totally quiet when we're diving. And uh, that, I think, will be a very special. I wonder how that's going to feel, because there's no way I can make big bubbles to scare off the shark, but of course, I don't know. Maybe I will feel safe anyway because I'm underwater and I'm in control. And I've also heard I don't know if this is true, but if a shark is aggressive to you, keep eye contact. Really? What I've been told is that sharks will not attack somebody that sees you, they usually attack from behind. I mean, so if you see it, it's not going to be the one biting you. (laughs) <laughs> Do the
0: sharks know
1: this? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. It's I don't gonna know. Be, the going to be the friend, uh, his friend, biting from behind instead that you didn't. see. then there's no need to worry. <laughs> they work. They work in tag team. Exactly. Yeah. So humans, I
0: are, humans are very funny. You know, we um, like for me, I would rather. Um, so when I, you know, when we were up in Connecticut. There's bears there. We only have black bears. Uh, We don't have brown bears. They're in the Pacific, and grizzlies are kind of like in the middle of the country. Uh, Black bears are, for the most part, pretty docile. Um, There are some attacks, obviously, um, but rare that that, that black bears kill someone in the U.S. Um, But we had a black bear in in the backyard a a couple of months ago, and, you know, he's a big fella. (laughs) For me, that doesn't really bother me too much. I would rather... If I'm hiking, I would rather see a black bear than like hornets or wasps. You know, that's for me like, the, and then there's people like you who are like, you know, a shark is okay, but a border collie, no, 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 no. And no then like, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. True. It's true. Like the way we, the way we perceive fear through, and, and you know, if you ask most people, I'm, I'm assuming most people will, you know, you can't pay them enough to go underwater and swim with a shark. That's like a, no. that's yeah. a no, no. Yeah. So the way we perceive fear and the way that we think about the, the, the way we, I guess, rate the risk involved in certain activity or facing a certain animal is so different compared to, or not compared, but I guess relative to maybe how we were brought up or yeah. things yeah. that we'd like, or just, yeah, whatever the affiliation is, it's, it's, it's really funny how humans perceive things.
1: Yeah it's it's all about experience and knowledge basically yeah, yeah that's what it's based on
0: yeah yeah we're a funny creature humans oh yes <laughs> <laughs> so do you have any i mean post covid do you have any plans that that you want to go do you want to go hot water cold water cuz
1: do, do you have a preference for you know diving in either cold water or, or uh, warmer waters no I, I really like the cold water diving uh, I wouldn't say I prefer it, but I definitely like it. I like, I like the you know, just a little bit more rough environment, you know. And uh, it's it that itself is a challenge in itself. And and then uh, we have so much things that are so untouched up here in the north. I would say compared to if you compare to the Mediterranean or Red Sea, I mean, where there's like hundred divers on every wreck or every reef, yeah, 365 days a year, you know, it's, it's not as it's more fun to dive places where you feel a little bit more like a pioneer, even though you're not, but you get more of that feeling. Yeah. So, and cold water diving tends to give you more of that feeling. Um, and uh, as for traveling, uh, In the future, the only plan I have for now is basically I'm doing my full cave uh, CCR course in France in October. So I hope to be able to go to France in October and I'm going to be doing my full cave CCR course there. And uh, maybe with a little bit of luck uh, and if COVID is behaving, I will try to go to Mexico just shortly after that and dive in the Yucatan Peninsula, the Cenotes. Nice. Uh, I did that 2007, uh, just the basically open water ones. Uh, It was very nice, but with a full cave certification, I think there will be a lot of nice things to explore. Wow. I mean, caving is really
0: that's pretty much the most dangerous form of scuba diving you can do right Uh,
1: it probably can be uh, because i mean usually you don't have to worry about like caves collapsing and things like that but there are millions of things that can go very wrong in, in a cave dive and especially if it's Murky waters or bad visibility, which is not usually the biggest problem in Yucatan because it's crystal clear there. Yeah, Yeah, like 200 feet visibility, you know. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I guess you can get a silt out there, of course, too. And uh, if you lose the line, you get a silt out and you get more lost and you don't have the right training how to find back to the line and what to do. And if you're panicking, then it's a very bad thing if you're five hours into the cave system yeah that's very bad
0: <laughs> you know i i just remembered now when i was uh, in australia in around 2000 and i think it was three or four early 2000s um we went uh snorkeling in the great barrier reef and uh right before we kind of go in the 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 you know we take a little um uh, like a uh, rubber boat off the big boat and it takes us into the reef. And the guy says, um, you know, just uh, right before you go in the water, I just want to let you know, if you see um, jellyfish that are, I can't remember the exact colors, but he told us like, you know,
1: blue, yellow, yeah, whatever yeah, blue, Purple, pink.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He was like, do not go anywhere near them. And I was like, oh, for fuck's sake, man. Like, I don't want to go anywhere near those things. And like, I swear, like I was about to jump in. And as soon as he says, I, I was like, oh, maybe, you know, again, like that that fear thing for me, like jellyfish is one of the worst things because I had a really bad incident with the jellyfish when I was, when I was a young kid. So I kind of just go in, I like I went into the water very cautiously. <laughs> I was like, not more than like three, four meters away from the rubber boat at any given moment. Uh, and then I was just looking around all the time. But like, I couldn't enjoy myself because the whole time I was just like, scoping the area to make sure no pink
1: jellyfish you know mutilates my leg exactly <laughs> so, yeah yeah no they're they're really dangerous um yeah uh, i think they're called portuguese something i can't remember the name but they're, they're... oh uh, man of war or something like that yeah maybe maybe that's the same one yeah they're yeah. very dangerous in a way but you have
0: the ones in micronesia that are completely harmless right there's those yeah. uh, there's yeah. area where there's like millions of
1: yeah. them Yeah, in Palau, there's a freshwater lake. Mm. I think it's Palau, yeah. Yeah, Palau, I think there's a freshwater lake with millions of jellyfish, which looks amazing. It does. That that, that looks like a really fun destination. That's probably one of the destinations I'll be visiting in 21 or 22, I think. Uh, But if COVID behaves.
0: (laughs) (laughs) If people behave. Yeah, if people behave. <laughs> <laughs> how,
1: is, how is Sweden doing? Is it better? Uh, I would say life has gone on pretty normal here since end of May, beginning of June, I would say. Uh, but, yeah, I think numbers are going down quite... It's been pretty steady going down since beginning of uh, June, I think, or mid-May or something like that. So, yeah, slowly making progress, I guess. Uh then some, Then you hear like, oh, this country says that Sweden everybody's like dying in the streets, but it's not really like that. Yeah, <laughs> it's me, media likes to pull our legs.
0: <laughs> Man, I've uh, don't even get me started on media. We were going to do another three hours. Just I stopped listening to the majority of the news that I hear. I just I have a hard time believing it anymore because yeah. yeah. they're all agenda driven. And they they all have a bias that they want to push forward. So yeah, Yeah. very unfortunate. Yeah. That they just don't give us the straight facts uh, because you want um, an educated um, society. So it's unfortunate, but it is what it is right now. Um, Well, Alex, I want to thank you so much. I had a great time. I really learned a lot about underwater diving wrecks, uh, even photography. So uh yeah i had a great time man thanks so much thank you where um where can people find you on uh, on social media
1: Uh, on instagram i'm uh, alex underscore dawson uh, underscore photography dawson d-a-w-s-o-n and on facebook i think it's just uh, alex dawson underwater or no Alex Dawson Photography Portfolio is uh, the name on Facebook, but I'm not very active in Facebook, so Instagram is where I publish my stuff most of the time, okay. a couple awesome. of times a week.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you guys definitely follow him. His photography is phenomenal. Uh, it's it, I love it. It's really amazing, and I'll make sure to put uh, all the links in the show notes, so it's every it's easy for everyone to uh, to find it.
1: Thank you so much. Cool, uh, it's a pleasure
0: talking to you. Yeah, same here, man. We'll have to do it again. Yeah, cool. All right. <laughs> take care, Bye. man. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.